Hi, everyone. Welcome to Request for Explanation podcast number nine. Today, we've got me, Carol Nichols. Me, Manish Goregaukar. I'm Alexi Bangesner. And me, Nico Matsakis. And today, we're going to be discussing RFC 2094, non-lexical lifetime. Okay, Nico, please introduce yourself and give us a quick introduction to this RFC. So, um, I work on the language team and the core team. Uh, been working on Rust for a while now, and about I guess about six years. And the RFC here is really about basically improving Rust's the core part of Rust's uh, borrow checking system. So the part of Rust that says when you've borrowed something, you're not allowed to mutate it and so forth. Uh, we want to make that analysis more precise, and in particular. Um, have it understand control flow better so that there's so that we can kind of sidestep a lot of common errors that where it seems like the compiler just uh, is being overly persnickety about the way you wrote your code. Um, so essentially anytime you might have been tempted to introduce extra braces or extra blocks in order to teach to convince the compiler that that a borrow is is good and truly done, we'd like for that to go away. And the compiler can just understand the code the way you wrote it originally. So in other words, is this going to fulfill everyone's hopes and dreams, right? That's right. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> there might be a few things uh, that doesn't fulfill. So let me be more specific. Uh, so actually, right, it, it's an improvement on the analysis. And it's designed to cover a number of really common cases. But there are a number of other things that it doesn't cover, of course, uh, ways that we might improve the borrow system in the future. So I think it's it's pretty good to be clear on what this will and won't do. Right? I would say that the biggest features that are there we are the biggest sorry requests that the RFC doesn't handle is when you want to have, for example, a struct with a vector and some of the fields that are pointers into that vector or references into that vector. Um, that use case sometimes it's, it's it comes under different names, but that kind of use case is not supported by this RFC. That would be a different extension to the system. And the other one is if there are different methods, sometimes you might have two helper methods, say one of which accesses a certain set of fields and one of which accesses another, and you can't compose them. Um, you can't, for example, call them. Uh, like you have one method that looks up something in a hash table that's in one of your fields and another method that, that just does something unrelated to that hash table and you'd like to invoke while you're holding a reference from the first method, you'd like to invoke the second. Sometimes you get an error. Um, these two scenarios are not are not covered, but what we are aiming to do is essentially any time that you have to reorganize the body of a function, I'd like to kind of eliminate that. And I'm sure that won't be entirely met because that's a pretty broad, broad statement, but I think we've come pretty close. Like some specific examples might be when you're matching on the result of a call to get or something like that. Uh, so it's looking up something in a hash map and you get back an option Right now, when you go down either branch, essentially, if, if either branch uses the result from that call, then both branches, the, the map is considered borrowed under both branches. And that's kind of the classic case we'd like to fix, where we understand that when you get back none, you didn't actually get a reference into the map back. And therefore, uh, you don't have to consider the map borrowed anymore because there is no reference to it in that path. And the way to fix that right now is the um, the entry API, right? 
So That's right. would, would this remove all need for the entry API or will there still be reasons to use that? Uh, it does not remove all need for the entry API and the entry API itself kind of still allows you to, for example, uh, look up an entry and then if the entry is empty, place things into it without incurring more than one hash lookup. Um, and it kind of it basically allows you to do common patterns on hash maps more efficiently. But so in a sense, perhaps it's good that we didn't have this right away because it encouraged something like the entry API, which I think is very nice to use um, and, and better than some of the original APIs that we uh, that we had essentially. Yeah. So to summarize, the entry API will should always be the fastest and most convenient way to do the things that the non-lexical lifetimes RFC is enabling. But if you don't know about them or you're just writing some naive code, you, it will start working now. You won't have to know about the entry API. And there's more advanced things where like we haven't implemented the entry API for random stuff. So those right. will, you can just write those. That's right. There might be some patterns that are currently awkward. They should work better. Um. So, like, how how is this? Without getting too into the weeds, uh, how is this RFC proposing to fix this? So, yeah, it's it's actually it's a hard one to talk about because, in a sense, there's not there's not like a user visible feature like when you use this new Rust, it's not that you are gonna have some new syntax or something like that. It should just be that you will get far fewer errors, right? And so the RFC is really a lot, is, is a very detailed RFC look, talking about how we're going to extend the analysis itself. Um, most of which to use it, you don't have to really understand in depth, right? But I think how it's gonna change your life um, besides getting fewer errors is more specifically, you're gonna get fewer errors for those cases where you were taking a reference in some part of your code uh, and then only using it like through either conditional branches, so I mentioned match before, or another one that comes up a lot is, for example, um, if you store a reference into a local variable and then you sort of stop using the, the variable halfway down through the block or something like that, um, you know, the, the, the compiler will now be able to understand that in fact, it only needs to be borrowed. The, the, the thing that you borrowed to make that reference only needs to be borrowed until the point where you stopped using the reference and then it can, it can go back to its normal state. So I think the, basically if it's working right, you shouldn't really notice it much at all. And that's kind of the idea. I, I think when I was going through the RFC, I realized something that I really liked about it which was that this improves error messages a lot because the current error messages are all about, oh, well, there's this hypothetical scope and there's other hypothetical scope and they don't like each other. And it's not always easy to get intuition about this, whereas now the error messages are, are more going to be of the form, well, you're writing to it here and you're reading from it here and that's not good which is a much clearer thing and much easier to fix because now it's basically fitting a much better mental model about it. And I think this might be the one of the major user view viewable impacts of this. Yeah, that's a good point. We did one of the other, so 
when we originally designed the system that we have today, we kind of kept it intentionally based on lexical scopes because we thought it would be easier for people to understand, but that has not been my experience, I guess. It seems like uh, most people are much more comfortable with, they kind of understand the control flow of their program pretty intuitively, as you might expect, and they want they expect the compiler to understand it at the same level as they do. So I think an advantage of, these, of this newer, more precise analysis is that we can actually give, the errors should be only when you, the errors are not going to occur in many scenarios, and when they do occur, it should be easier for us to explain to you why they're coming about, because it's not due to sort of an imprecision, or there is imprecision, but the imprecision is, is much uh, more tied to the flow of your program and less tied to where you put braces. On that note, uh, what exactly is liveness, and what's the difference between lexical liveness and non-lexical liveness? Okay, so liveness is a compiler analysis. It's pretty easy to understand intuitively. It, you would say a variable is live if it might get used again. Right. So if you have, um, if you have, for example, uh, a variable that gets used in one half of an if then before you enter the if, the variable is live, because as far as the compiler knows, you might go down the path uh, where it's going to get used. But once you enter the if, if you go down the else branch, say, and you're not using the variable anymore, then it's dead. And if you go down the if branch, then in that if branch of the program, it would still be considered live up until the point where it gets used. And so basically something is dead when it's live if it might get used again, and it's dead if at some point in the control flow, you know, that it will never be used again until the function returns. Um, and that's crucial, that's a key part of this RFC because essentially what we're saying is so long as a reference is live, that is to say so long as there's some local variable that, that, that contains the reference and that local variable might be used again, um, then the, the borrow will continue. Right? So it's only when you stop using the reference and that's when we drop the, the borrow of a value ends altogether. And it's worth noting that this is like a bog standard analysis that all production compilers have anyway, because it lets you do lots of optimizations like, oh, this variable never gets used again, so I don't, I can like, I can put other stuff in the space where it is. For yes, it definitely is. And Rusty itself has a liveness analysis already as well. Uh, not uh, as not defined in the way we defined it in the RC, but we use it to give warnings right now. Right? So if you make an assignment like A equals B and then you never read from A again, um, the liveness analysis is the one that figures that out. And it knows because at that point, A is dead basically. So if you're assigning to a spot that's dead, that means that value will never get used. Um, then you can give a warning. And I guess that's one other kind of interesting part about liveness. That, well, it fits the intuitive definition, but if you, it's not just if a variable gets used again, it's if the current value of the variable gets used again, right? So if you have a variable P and you assign to it and you use it, and then later on you assign to it again, in that gap in between the last use before it gets reassigned, the variable is still dead because even though the variable is going to be used again, the value that's in the variable isn't. It's going to be reassigned with a new value before it gets used. So why is this taken so long? Uh, that's a good question. It's it's proven to be a lot harder than we expected to, to work this analysis out. 
And I think there's, I think the main reason for that is that, so when we first thought about the idea of, of having the borrows be based on the control flow graph, that seemed like a fairly straightforward extension to the system we have now. And indeed, I think it would be, but it actually wouldn't just making borrows be some portion of the control flow graph rather than sort of being based on the lexical scoping of the program wouldn't really buy you that much in terms of, of reduced errors. What took a long time to work out was cases where you have named lifetimes on the function, um, like lifetime parameters. So essentially with the cases where you're returning references, either by actually returning them or by storing them into a map, a mutable map that you get in or something like that, mutable data structure. Um, and a common example of this would be that you say match, or you, you get a you get an entry out of a hash map, and if it's present, then you return it, and otherwise you try to mutate the map, right? And that's a little bit different from the example I gave earlier, where I said you get an entry out of the map, and if it's present, you you use it, and otherwise you use the map. Specifically, I'm talking about returning it here, and why that's hard is that. When you return it, it means that the reference has to live as long as, kind of longer than the current function. So it's, because it's, it's gonna, the caller is going to be using it. So you're starting a borrow somewhere that's gonna extend into the caller, um, which means it goes outside the bounds of the control flow graph. Uh, so in the compiler, I should say, when we have a, a function that we're analyzing, we, we make what's called a control flow graph, which is basically a representation of that, of that function body. And so what I'm saying here is when you return a, a reference, you're starting a borrow that lasts larger than the current function, right, outside of the current function body. And it's very tempting to treat that case, and the compiler does today, in a very approximate way. So you might say, okay, well, if it's getting returned, then it's going to have to include, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to include the rest of this function. It's going to include some part of the caller and the entire function body, essentially. That's what the compiler does today. And if you do that, that winds up creating these really annoying errors. Um, there's an example in the RFC. I think they're actually much worse than the kinds of errors. Most of the errors that will be that, that get sidestepped basically require you to restructure your code a little bit, but they don't necessarily cost you efficiency. But these sorts of errors that come around from returning references are worse because they require you usually to really add uh, additional checks and, and branches and so forth. Or, or, or and so your code actually runs just a little slower than it would have done otherwise, which bothers me. Um, and it's almost impossible to figure out how to restructure your code to actually get the form that the compiler accepts. Yeah, you have to really understand the way it works. And so solving that problem basically took us a long time. And that that's where we introduced kind of the key idea of the RFC, essentially, which is that when you, you might have... Um, we, we were able to express the idea that, that you're conditionally returning something. We call it conditional subtyping, but that you'd have a reference that you're uh, assigning to a bigger type, like the one in your signature, ampersand, tick A, whatever, and we're only doing that on some branches. Right? And, and so we understand that when you're going down those branches, it has, the borrow has to continue outside of the function. But when you go down other branches where you won't return that reference, it can end earlier. And working those rules out took quite some time. So this means that lifetimes are no longer just scopes, but they also may contain, may be further restricted to control flow paths. It's really weird. Yeah, it's, well, I don't know if it's weird, actually. So it sounds, 
it's sort of like we were saying earlier, I think it sounds complicated to say, well, a lifetime is uh, corresponds now not to some scope, but to you know, a, port, a path or a set of paths through the control flow graph or something. It sounds complicated, but I think it's exactly what you're intuitively reasoning about when you look at the at the function. You're, you're kind of tracing through what might happen and what might not happen, and how might this particular value get used or not used. It's a bit weird, um, at least from my perspective, uh, with how this affects the way subtyping is defined. Like subtyping is no longer like, oh, this lifetime is a subtype of this lifetime. It's this lifetime is a subtype of this lifetime at this specific point in the function. Um, because it's dependent on like if you took this branch or not and stuff, which is right. strange. It is unusual. Um, but I think it's kind of essential in order to be able to handle those kind of cases. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm just dreading having to write the documentation for how it actually works now. I mean, I can just imagine that this really complicates variance as well, which is, again, something most people don't have to think about. But if you do have to think about that, it's going to be tricky. Actually, well, perhaps. But I think that just sort of plays into the idea of subtyping. So like variance just sort of defines what so so variance is a way of deciding if you have a struct and it has say type or lifetime parameters on it um, like a generic struct then when is a subtype when how does subtyping interact with those generic parameters right so like when is a vec of ampersand something a subtype of another vec of ampersand something and I think it does. It, it actually works kind of orthogonally. I mean, if you accept that subtyping is dependent on where you are in the program, uh, then the variance rules are just sort of part of subtyping, but they essentially just propagate that. Yeah, variance thing. doesn't change. It's describing what subtyping even means anymore. So this RFC has an interesting. Well, it it has like a sort of hole in it with infinite loops which it patches up, which I found interesting. Do, would you like to talk about that for a bit? Yeah. So the situation is, it's not exactly a hole, but there is, if you, if you take the analysis as it's originally written, um, it's in a way too smart. <laughs> so you might have, for example, a local variable and then an infinite loop, let's say an empty infinite loop. And that means, the compiler can see from your code that, that this function will never return. And as a result, um, it would allow that local variable to be borrowed for a static lifetime. And the reason is basically we decide when you borrow a local variable, we look for uh, the spots in, your, in, in the control flow when that local variable would be popped from the stack. And we make sure that at those points, it's not borrowed, but since those since the variable will be popped from the stack when the function returns, and we can see that the function will never return, we would kind of never get an error. And that, um, so we add some special case, essentially, to the function where we say, we assume for the purposes of this analysis that every local, every time you enter an infinite loop, that, that may panic, right? It's, it's not really going to panic, obviously, um, at runtime, but we'll treat it as if it does, for the purposes of our analysis. And that, that lets us, that kind of 
winds up conforming better to at least what I expect the analysis to, to do. And so it won't allow you to say borrow a local variable for a static lifetime. And it will also rules out certain kind of surprising patterns that might otherwise work. It's not necessary. And there's some active debate about whether we should remove this special case. Um, because it's not that the analysis would be wrong before. It would just be kind of surprising. Um, and it allows some code to type check that I think, in my opinion, shouldn't type check, but like which could cause bugs. But in those cases, you could there. It's very dubious code, essentially unsafe code, where you can argue that the API itself was the problem and not uh, the analysis. Yeah, I'm but, personally of the opinion that this this extra check that you put in is uh, a very good at least starting point. Um, and it right. Because it can just be removed at any time, right? If we determine, like, oh, this isn't necessary. Yes. So one of the things I've been shooting for with this RFC is actually is to be cautious. Um, I mean, it's we're trying to go as far as we can, kind of, to making the rules, at least in a certain dimension, kind of feel like they have this common sense feeling. But I don't want to. Um, we're very, very wary that this is sort of the heart of Rust, and we're we're tinkering with it, right? And if we if we get it wrong, it might make the whole system feel more complicated. Um, so we want to make sure that the rules are predictable. Uh, and uh, I think this is an instance of that. Speaking of patterns, uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, how this affects the guard pattern. So for people not familiar, um, several places, at least in the standard library, uh, we use this pattern where you basically you have something like a, a VEC or a mutex. And, you, and then you request a view into it. Um, so for a mutex, you call lock. For a vec, you might call drain. For a hash map, you might call entry. And basically, these views, uh, they take, they know that they're getting exclusive access to the guts of uh, the type, so they can break invariance temporarily. So uh, for entry, um, like it can start doing an insertion and like leave the collection in kind of a corrupted state. Um, for drain, it can leave a hole in the collection. Uh, for lock, um, well, you're you're accessing something that theoretically is being shared concurrently. Uh, you're you're allowing to mutate something that is being that multiple things have a shared reference to. Um, and th this being safe, we're relying on the lifetime rules, where we're relying on basically the board checker to say, hey, while you have this view, no one else is allowed to uh, mess around with this thing. Um, lock is a bit more subtle. It's, it can't be, the lock can't be completely destroyed, at least. Uh, but for the others, there's, you have truly exclusive access. Um, so with this RFC, I believe Guard, you can't rely on guards to do their jobs if they don't have a destructor. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, just having a guard, if it doesn't have any form of destructor, then the borrow will only last as long as the guard is still in use, essentially. Right. So you, if, if for whatever reason you made a guard, and you were just kind of like, as long as this is sitting around, um, no one's allowed to modify stuff. That's not a sound pattern. 
And that was always kind of a sketchy pattern. Um, but now it, it would just be totally broken. It would be semantics. Uh, all of the guards in uh, Rust are made safe because they um, they all have destructors. And they also do things to make sure that if their destructors don't run, then things will be good. So, yes, um, I think your description is accurate, but I would say it was not only always a sketchy pattern, it was basically a broken pattern unless you were using it in private code. Because if you had the guard, if you, you in other words, if you make a guard and you release the guard to, let's say, to, to outside of, you know, to the public, outside of your API, um, and then you have methods on the guard, that's fine, right? In the RFC, nothing changes. Like, so long, all those methods can still assume that the, the guard has exclusive access each time they're invoked, right? And similarly, if you have some functions that take the guard as argument or a reference to the guard, that should also work. What wouldn't work is if you had a guard but that was supposed to hold a lock, but then some other path that reached the same data uh, was had public methods that didn't take the guard as argument and weren't methods on the guard. They weren't connected to the guard in any way, but you know, but uh, but they assume the guard still exists. But I think that's just they can't make that assumption without at least taking it as argument because or being a method on it because the the end user could always have dropped the guard. Um, yeah. And so so kind of there, I think where that guard pattern and the way I described it could have been used is in sort of semi-safe code, like it's, you're using it yeah, internally. It. It's not for a public yeah. consumption API. You know you're gonna, you know you're not gonna do. Yeah, you're using it basically as like a lint against misuse. Yes, and there you, it's true that it would be a less effective lint now. <laughs> uh, well, an ineffective lint. Um, right. It's now it's worth. I want to something I want to emphasize about this though that comes up and one misunderstanding that's common is. Nothing in this RFC changes the runtime execution of Rust. And so the guard, if it had a destructor, the destructor would still run at the same time as it ever did. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions from people who think that, who, who misinterpret the RFC and are under the impression that it's going to cause destructors to run earlier, for example. Um, but that's not true. So this RFC is purely a static analysis. It's just at compile time. We look at the code and how we decide what code to accept or not accept changes. But what the code actually does, if we accept it, should be unchanged. Well, it so to be even clearer, it will it shouldn't change quote unquote observable behavior, but it will change some implementation defined behavior. For instance, it should enable better code gen, right? Uh, that that could be true, potentially. Yeah. I don't know that it will at least at first, but uh, because it's a more precise analysis, so if we improve our code gen based on, for example, the borrow results, then having better precision would enable us to do a better job. But yeah, it won't change kind of things that you can observe exactly. So switching gears a little bit, um, instead of just making a pull request to the RFC repo, for this one you made a whole separate repo and you're like managing discussions in issues and taking pull requests and things like that. How has that worked out? That's, it's been interesting. Uh, I think I would call it, I would say it's been a mixed success. So I think it's been really great for um, 
helping to focus, kind of separate out discussions and focus on particular problems. Uh, so having the issue tracker like that is helpful. And I, not to mention that I got several PRs that fixed an amazing number of typos um, within minutes. I think it is a little harder to get a sense of the whole, the whole, to kind of get a feel like you're up to speed on the discussion as a whole this way. Um, I've been trying to, well, I wrote at least one summary comment kind of pointing people at the active threads uh, and trying to help people know where to look within the different repos that are that are active. Uh, I think I think I would consider doing it this way again, but I would want to take some lessons and try to give it a bit more structure next time. Um, like what kind of structure would you like start some issues on certain topics or yeah I might do that I might also just make a point of uh, updating say the head I could do it now um, like those sort of summary comments seem to me to be very helpful to give people a sense of uh, what where things where discussions are happening and what they're about right and I might uh, try to make them more prominent and do them more frequently but I, the other reason I chose to do that I mean I think it depends on the RFC so this is a very detailed RFC about the internals of the compiler and I anticipated that we wouldn't get a lot of, um, that we would have kind of very focused discussion on specific points, which I think has been true. And I think this is a good fit for that. I'm not sure how well it would work uh, for other RFCs where it seems like in theory, you'd like to separate out different topics of discussion, but they tend to, it tends to be, I found that when you're talking about topic A, it kind of impacts topic B and they're not easily separated. Um, so it may depend on the RFC, essentially. What's the right model? Yeah, I don't know how to solve when discussions cross over. But saying that it's hard to, it's hard to keep up with all the discussions, that sounds like a plus in my book. Sometimes <laughs> I don't want to keep up with all the, all the comments. Right. I just yeah. want to keep up with the ones I'm interested in. You can turn it around. I mean, I've always wanted our RFCs to have sort of like a table of contents or RFC discussions so that people who are coming in late or just aren't that interested in reading every comment but want to get a sense of where things are can, can follow along. And I think separating the discussion out from the main thread has, has some advantages in that regard. And I will say it feels really great to be able to like answer. If someone makes a really strong point to just say, to be able to just open an issue saying like, yes, we should make this edit and then say, thank you, here's the issue number. You know, now we can track it there. Um, that feels very good. Yeah, that seems like a more nat not natural, but kind of the way we're used to using issues rather than just having the unresolved questions at the end and hoping that we remember to resolve those before, uh, before accepting an RFC. So now we could see, we can see that all the issues are closed. Right. Although the un, the un, well, in my mind, the unresolved questions has a different role, actually, or at least the way I like to use it. I suppose it could be done many ways, which is that if, if I put an unresolved question in RFC, I like to say we should accept it with this question unresolved. And the point is that's something we should resolve before we stabilize, uh, but it's something we chose not to resolve at this time. Um, because it was usually because it requires some experience with it to, to, to feel like we know the answer. 
or at least I think that's an important thing to have in the RFC process, the ability to not answer all of the questions, right? since you never really will. That's a good point. I've always looked at it as a way of like crowdsourcing certain decisions, because their RFCs have a large first mover advantage. Whoever writes the RFC gets a lot of influence on what it's going to look like in the end. So it's really good for people to be able to say, so these are the things I think are core and here are some other things which I am not sure about, which I want the community to think about for a while. And it's good to have that section as well. So this section seems to be like having multiple um, cases. Yeah, that's true. I think I use it in a particular way, but there are many ways <laughs> that one might use it. Um, yeah, kind of. I, I like that because you would keep your unresolved questions in the text of the RFC while the ones that should get resolved can be issues. So this could, this repo split in using issues can make that distinction clearer. Because I've also used it as like, I don't know how we should solve this thing, but we probably should. Right, right. Because yeah, I would imagine we're going to get, once the RFC is accepted, I'll get rid of the repo, therefore sort of the issues in it should be closed, <laughs> ideally. Uh, although maybe we won't if it's still useful to, it might be that it stays around at least until it's fully implemented and stabilized, just as a useful place to, to talk about the design. Yeah, so there's like a prototype, right? What does what the prototype do? Yes, there's a prototype and that was how we went through, that was really helpful. Uh, so the prototype just, takes inputs which are not really Rust. They're kind of, they look a little bit like the internal representation the compiler uses uh, that we call mirror. And it just implements the core algorithms of the sort of lifetime analysis and the borrow checker and reports errors. And it lets you write sort of unit tests. Um, and that was one of the first things I did when we were playing around with this is I went through and collected use cases and tried to tried to have implement the algorithms in some way to so I could see what happened, right? And actually, the first thing it taught me was that my first drafts were sort of unimplementable, <laughs> uh, much too complicated for me to figure out how to even write the code. Um, and then, you know, it was really useful in uh, making, uh, making if, I, if I make a change to the proposal, then I can quickly run the unit test and, and know that I accidentally break, you know, I fixed use case A, but maybe I broke use cases B and C or something like that. Um, and not to mention just being able to, when people ask you what, what would happen if I did this or that, I can sort of say, well, let's try it and see. Uh, is there an easy way people can try that out or do you have to kind of be able to read and write mirror? I think, well, you don't have to be able to read and write mirror, but I think if there's any problems, I didn't write, it was, I didn't comment it very well. Okay. Uh, so it's certainly not, I, there is a readme that tells you how to run the test and you can certainly do it, but. I found already when I explained it to, to somebody in person, you know, I realized how much I had not commented. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, you know, it was more for me playing around. I didn't realize I was going to release it publicly. Uh, I think in retrospect, I would have liked to take some time to comment it and make it more accessible. So if people want to move this, help move this forward, what could people do? So good question. There is, if we're moving it forward, I think there's a few points of discussion still up in the air. Um, mostly there are fairly detailed points though. 
And we've already started to do some of the work for actually implementing it. So the goal is to implement the analysis uh, initially as a sort of internal compiler um, mode. So it's not, it's not going to impact the, the errors when you run it normally, but we'll be able to unit test it and, and so forth. And that way we can start working on it now, even though all the support that we're going to need isn't all in place. Um, and I think what I hope to be doing sort of leading up to the coming impl period where we're asking people to, or we're trying to make a big push to help people get involved uh, in finishing up the RFCs is laying out a number of bugs related to that initial implementation and trying to get support. So there's a lot of little bits of work to do. I mean, everything from working on the testing harness so, uh, to, um, you know, to the actual analysis, to the error messages and so forth. I think there'll be plenty of room for people to get involved in implementing this. Do you expect this, like nightly users will have this by 2018? I don't know. I don't know. I would like to think so, um, but uh, but it, I don't want to promise that. <laughs> the beginning of 2018 or the end of 2018? Oh, well, by the end for sure. Okay. Uh, I thought I, I, I interpreted I was this as by January 1st, 2018. Um, I think Let's it'll move be available at Christmas. This should be all Rust developers' Christmas present for Pico. Okay, we're going to shoot for that. <laughs> I, I, I think early 2018 is, is a pretty safe bet, though. There are some dependencies, though. We have to get the mirror. So we're currently working on an, a new version of the borrow checker using the existing rules uh, that's more flow, that's based on the Kind of, that's kind of closer to how this RFC is, is described, what we call the mirror borrow check. And that's, that's kind of halfway to landing now, or it, parts of it have landed, it's halfway to being turned on, I guess I should say. And that is kind of a prerequisite, um, not to mention, you know, implementing the actual analysis itself. So there's, there's definitely stuff to do. I think, uh, maybe we'll have it as an opt-in version where you, you pass a compiler flag or something. Unlikely, rather than just getting it by default. But. Does anyone have any closing questions? Yeah, I've got a lightning round. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, Nico, are scolums safe for children? <laughs> if they're friendly I, ones. Uh, I told you that word was banned. <laughs> <laughs> Not in lightning rounds. Lightning rounds are, are safe from all criticism. I regret using that word in the RFC for it. <laughs> that was a silly move on my part. Will this RFC add PRX values to the Rust semantics? <laughs> no. <laughs> I need funnier answers to these questions. Uh, I can't think of any other good ones. Well, how do I protect myself from scolums at night? <laughs> Uh, help. <laughs> well, non-lexical lifetimes will protect you from that. Yeah, there you go. That sounds right. I need to toss out some big, some big words in answer to that. Like, you can use somebody's theorem that I forgot. <laughs> well, I, I, it's definitely I usually use bug spray. It's, it's definitely De Bruin indices are the solution to this problem. There I think go. that's the biggest word in the compiler off the top of my head. I think so. 
De Bruyne. De, is it De Bruyne or De Bruyne? I have no idea. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know if this is going on the air, but I'm just going to say something, which is that, not that controversial. When, uh, when we first put in this De Bruyne indices patch, I made a very big effort to spell it correctly. And I spelled it at least four different ways in different parts <laughs> of the compiler. <laughs> like the initial PR, uh, there was somebody who just went through and corrected all my misspellings. But she just called them like Deb indices or something. In retrospect, why did you use an acronym? Because I couldn't spell it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Jake really enjoyed this this RFC being a repo he could send pull requests to, and I. Oh man, he was so he was very editorly. Yes, um, there was even. A day when I like I was trying to talk to him, he's like, "Hold on, I'm editing Nico's RFC." It's like, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a few points I was tempted to argue, but then I was like, "Do I really care to argue in favor of starting a sentence with but?" I mean, I feel it's fine, but you know, it's okay. I'm gonna take the PR. <laughs> There's a pull request that has the title just in all caps, "The Rust." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did close one. There was one that was a bridge too far. It was recurse. He insisted I should say the function recurse. And I was like, no. That's it. Well, you're willing to die on. That's right. <laughs> my, in my opinion, recurring is occurring more than once, not recurring recursively. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sticking to that line. All right, well, well, on that note, this podcast <laughs> will be recurring soon. And if you have a an RFC you'd like us to talk about, you can file an issue at our repo, which you can get to from is.gd slash RFE podcast. Thank you for listening. Nico, thank you for being on the show. Thank you.